Luke chapter 4. Page 1596, if you're going to the Pew Bible in front of you, Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 14, the Gospel of Luke, this is after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil, we read of his now beginning his ministry in Galilee. Let us hear God's word, our authority in faith and in life. Please give your attention to its reading. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it does not take a rocket scientist to know, it's common knowledge, that really no one likes or wishes to be in prison, to be bound, to be captive, to be enclosed within so small a space is to most devastating and uh, to many horrifying. To anyone who believes that this life is all that there is, it would be even worse. You're spending your time in the absence of freedom, not able to do anything that you want to do while you see your life pass by in front of you. There's a fascinating story in scripture in Acts chapter 16 which speaks about Paul and Silas being imprisoned. The episode is brought on as Paul and Silas walk through the town square in Philippi and a young woman starts following them and and causing a stir. These men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, she says. In other words, they are telling you how to be saved. This girl 
caused a stir because she was known in that town square as being someone who was involved in spiritualism, in occult practices. She was a fortune teller, and she was a slave girl, and her owners made money off of her telling fortunes for other people. And here she is proclaiming what seems to be the fact that what Paul and Silas are saying and teaching is superior to what she is saying. They are telling you the way of salvation. They proceed to, Paul and Silas proceed to uh, cast out a demon that was inside this young girl. And this infuriates the owners. And this makes Paul and Silas marked men. And they end up in prison. But on the first night of their being bound, there is a great earthquake, and their chains are broken, and all of the doors to the prison are opened up. Paul and Silas are saved. Their salvation is sitting right in front of them. They can simply walk out. But they do not walk out of the prison. They do not take the freedom that is standing right in front of them. They voluntarily stay there. When the Philippian jailer awakes, he is instantly certain that he will lose his life because these prisoners got out under his watch. But Paul and Silas have remained there, of course. The jailer falls down before them and he says, What must I do to be saved? See, he knows that what they are saying, what they believe, is true. Paul and Silas put the eternal salvation of this jailer in front of the temporary salvation of themselves. They knew that they would show the jailer that their message is true and powerful. That they know the way of salvation. Paul and Silas are, in this story, showing us that the earthly realm, or the earthly sphere, is not all that there is and is not the most important thing. Though the kingdoms of the world often exercise power over God's people, and in this instance were exercising power over Paul and Silas, they knew and believed that their God was the king of kings, and that his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom is not temporary like the kingdom's of this world. And what Paul and Silas are doing is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. This passage before us in Luke chapter 4 today is central and definitive to the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. What is it that he came to do? We find a concise answer right here. And although at first glance it seems as though Jesus is elevating the importance of this earthly sphere, he is actually doing just the opposite. He is thrusting our attention to the kingdom of God and to the conquest of the greatest of all enemies, which all people on earth have, Satan, sin, and death. We'll look at this passage in two halves. Verses 14 through 21 teach us that the kingdom of God is present and it's active in Jesus. And verses 22 through 30 show us that the people in Nazareth misunderstand what Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God. It's present and active. The kingdom is present and active in Jesus. And secondly, the people from Nazareth misunderstand the meaning of God's kingdom. So first, then, we see the kingdom present and active in Jesus. After his wilderness temptation, we read that Jesus goes out in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The ministry of Jesus in Galilee will continue from this passage all the way through chapter 9, where then Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. 
The place of this story is very important to notice. Uh, We're told that this is not the first thing that Jesus does after his wilderness temptation. He's going throughout all of the countryside and he is teaching. And so this is not the first thing that Jesus does after his wilderness temptation, but this is the first story that Luke delves into in any depth. Why? Just like at the beginning of the gospel, the first story where we see Zechariah in the holy place inside the temple, and of course Luke does that to show us the importance and the centrality of the Jewish faith and how Jesus springs up out of the Jewish scriptures. This story in Nazareth is the first one in the gospel of Luke and Jesus' ministry in Galilee to show that Jesus is the prophet who is sent to his people. He is the fulfillment of all of their scriptures. So to prove that, to drive that point home, the first place where we find, about, find out about Jesus doing ministry in Galilee is this story in Nazareth. It's very clear he's been doing other things. You can see, for instance, in verse 23, where they've already heard about different things that he's been doing in Capernaum. But he dives into this story in this way to show us that Jesus is the prophet the priest and the king, the savior who was sent to his people. And so Jesus enters the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath. He rises up to read scripture in the worship assembly. This is the hometown hero, the hometown boy returning to his own. This is the synagogue where likely he went all growing up. And now he is a a teacher who is gaining notoriety in the region and people are hearing about him. And so he is coming back to his people. He has been appointed to read from God's word at the worship service in the synagogue. And out of God's providence, the lectionary reading for that day is Isaiah chapter 61. So Jesus gets up and he doesn't just find this passage on a whim. This was the one appointed for him to read. And he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. The first part of this passage brings our attention back to the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is on him and he has been anointed. At his baptism, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, we knew that the Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove. And that was an anointing. Jesus is an anointed one. In fact, the Greek word for Messiah is a word that means anointed one. After he was baptized, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. And in today's passage, the Spirit leads him into Galilee. He is working in accordance with the power of the Spirit because he is the one who is anointed by the Spirit. He is the anointed one. And Isaiah 61 is a passage about the Messiah the one who is anointed. So Jesus is seeing himself in this prophecy. He has been appointed to do many things. His mission is outlined and detailed in this passage. He is to preach the good news to the poor. He has been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight to the blind. He has been sent to release the oppressed. He has been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This passage has been highly scrutinized by many and has been looked at different ways, different vantage points. And there are many people who try to find in this passage 
proof that what Jesus was doing was a, a ministry of reconciliation that touched more upon socioeconomic problems than spiritual ones. And so there are books, for instance, books like A Theology for the Social Gospel by a man named Walter Rauschenbusch, or more modern books like Jesus for President by someone named Shane Claiborne. All these books make a similar case that Jesus was sent to free the socially or the economically oppressed. Since Jesus spent his time um, amongst the poor and since he ministered to the least of these, he came in a very literal sense to address all of their earthly, worldly problems. Just by way of illustration, I'll read a couple of sentences from uh, this book, The Theology for the Social Gospel. It says this, the, the social gospel is the old message of salvation but enlarged and intensified. The individualistic gospel has taught us to see the sinfulness of every heart and has inspired us with faith to know that God saves every soul that comes to him, but it has not given us an adequate understanding of the sinfulness of the social order and its share in the sins of all individuals within it. So what is he saying? He's saying that old gospel message that the church has always preached That's fine, but it's inadequate. And in fact, it has missed the ultimate thrust of what Jesus was sent to do. The ultimate purpose of Jesus, this man would say, is to change the social order. His ultimate purpose is to redeem the institutions of our world, like the economy or the government, and to make those things in themselves inherently righteous. But that is incorrect, because if we look at what Jesus did in his life from the vantage point of our passage today, what he accomplishes in his life on earth, it would have to be admitted that if that was his ultimate purpose, he failed miserably, because he did not overturn the social order of the world. He did not, though he did many miracles, he did not break many people out of jail, and he did not end worldwide oppression, and he did not reverse the economic status of the poor. Even within our passage today, Jesus is not setting prisoners free. He's not reforming world economics, but he is teaching. You see, the centrality of teaching in the kingdom of God The kingdom of God is is primarily one where the Messiah goes around and he is teaching people things. And how could Jesus have said at the end of his life that he accomplished everything that the Father sent him to do if his ultimate purpose was to reform these institutions of the world and it did not happen? The problem with people who would approach the teachings of Jesus this way, like what I just quoted, is that they take an idea like the kingdom of God And they make it about man. But that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus came to teach us. He came to teach us that in all things, we are to see God as supreme. And the reason he does that is because our sin blinds us to those realities. He taught us that we are to see God at the center of our lives and to see God as the greatest object after which we are to strive. One theologian put it this way, the kingdom of God is profoundly religious. In other words, what it is ultimately about is the relationship between God and his creatures. It is a profoundly religious reality. 
And therefore, it is extremely mistaken to see it as though the kingdom of God is primarily about the relationships between man to his fellow man. And it forgets the ultimate purpose for why we were created. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to love him and to enjoy him forever. Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, he was trying to bring our attention to all of these things. And so that leaves us with with a question. What is the liberty that Jesus was sent to proclaim? What is the freedom for the captives that we see? In verses 18 and 19, Jesus makes reference to a very specific event in the Old Testament. The year of Jubilee, Jesus says he has been sent to proclaim liberty, which is a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 25, which describes the Jewish year of Jubilee. What happened in the year of Jubilee? Well, properties were returned to their original owners and debts were forgiven. It was a a year where there are all these blessings that are sort of uniformly given to all the people in Israel. And so you may say, well, if that's true, the, the year of Jubilee, it sounds like that has a lot, of thing, a lot of connection to earthly things, property, debts being forgiven, and the like. But it's important to remember that the people of Israel were not to view their land or their homes or their property in economic terms. They were to view all of those things in covenantal terms. You see, we view our land, our, our house, the property that we own, we view it as something that we can, if we want to, we can sell it. You can sell it for a profit and you can buy other land. But Israel was instructed in Leviticus 25 that that is not why God gave them their land. It is a covenantal inheritance from the Lord. And so he says, it's not, your, your property is not to be perpetually sold for a profit. They had to view all of those things in covenantal terms. And moreover, the year of Jubilee started at a very specific time in Israel. It started on the Day of Atonement. And so it was a way to point them to this truth that their sins had been washed away, that the covenant had been renewed with God, and that is why land could be returned to the original owner and debts could be forgiven because it was pointing them to this greater reality that their sins had been forgiven by their covenant God and king. That is what it is pointing us to. And so when Jesus says he has come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, what he is saying is that I have come to fully and finally deal with and wash away sins. His kingdom is one of liberty to the captives, freedom for the prisoners, and conquest of the enemy. But the enemies which Jesus came to battle against are Satan and sin and death. And the liberty, the freedom which he proclaims is freedom from all of these enemies. The kingdom of God also does include an overturning of the social order. He will make all things right relative to all things in all institutions, structure and class and economics But that, those things, are what come at the resurrection of the dead. When God will bring his kingdom into its fullness, where righteousness will fully dwell. But if we look at the life of Jesus and what the apostles did right after he ascended into heaven. They went from town to town and they proclaimed the way of salvation. They did not give treatises on on how to, to fix the social order. 
They were not going around talking about the insufficiency of the Roman Empire. They were going around and proclaiming the way of salvation and how to be reconciled to God and how to live for him while we are on this earth. They brought the blessings of the age to come, a greater reality than this age. It's a spiritual liberty that is announced in the gospel message. That is what Jesus shows us in his life. He shows us that God is supreme in all things. He shows us that the most important relationship is whether or not you are reconciled to your creator. Not only that, but he says in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. These kingdom blessings are present and they are active in Jesus. Today this scripture is fulfilled, which is a beautiful translation. It focuses on the state of its fulfillment, its present fulfillment. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom is present and it's active in the Savior and its Messiah, Jesus Christ. But we see in the second half of this story, that the kingdom is misunderstood by the people in Nazareth. The initial reaction in verse 22 is very positive, isn't it? But Jesus senses what is going on, and in verse 23, he challenges their understanding, and he, and he prevents them from going any further in their misunderstanding of what he is doing. Jesus says, surely you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. This is uh, an often used parable from that time in history. It was noticed back then, as perhaps it could be noticed today, that sometimes doctors will help all of their patients and help the people that come to see them, but their own health is questionable at best. Sort of uh, an example of that old saying, do as I say, not as I do, right? Uh, Doctors were helping all of their patients, but not themselves. And the Nazarenes are applying this to Jesus being from their town. And just as this parable could apply to the doctor's family, the Nazarenes are saying it applies to you and your hometown. If you are this great teacher, if you're this great worker of miracles, then let us get in on some of those blessings. Show us some of the love that you've been showing everyone in Capernaum. And they're saying... If, if, if you're doing all of these great things, come and let, come here and do some of those miracles for us. Help the poor. Release the oppressed. Get me back the land that my grandfather owned. These are the kinds of things they're asking Jesus to do. And so we ask ourselves once again, why has Luke placed this here, this story here in this place in the gospel? If we remember just to the previous passage in last week, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. One of the things that he does is he consistently rebukes the devil for misunderstanding and for misapplying the scriptures. Remember, the devil takes Jesus on top of the temple and he quotes Psalm 91. He says, throw yourself down from here. God will not let any harm come to you. Or when he tells him to command the stones to be turned into bread, he's saying, perform a miracle. Prove to me that you are God. And so in a way we see that what the Nazarenes are are commanding Jesus to do likens them to the devil himself in the previous passage. They are misunderstanding scripture and they are seeing it apply more to the plane of this world 
than to the kingdom of God and the heavenly things, which was the exact same error that the devil fell into when he was tempting Jesus. They are not seeing that their enslavement to sin and salvation from that is what Jesus came to address. To prove his point, Jesus goes back into the history of Israel. He goes to the case of two of the most famous prophets from the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And what makes this such a controversial connection is that everyone knows that Elijah and Elisha, the reason they were going around and doing miracles outside of the borders of Israel is because that was one of the times of the most, uh, most acute unfaithfulness in their history. There were leaders like Ahab and Jezebel who led the people astray into terrible idolatry and all of Israel was under judgment and that's why these two great, great prophets were doing miracles but outside of the borders to people like Naaman the Syrian who was an enemy of the Israelites. So the Nazarenes do not miss the implication of what Jesus is doing. The message has been received. You know, sometimes you have to wonder whether or not people are picking up on all of the, the, the subtle things that you're trying to communicate, you know? And uh, if people respond to what you're saying by trying to kill you, it usually means that they have received the message. It's a good sign they got it. And that's what happens in this story. Jesus is driven out of the town because they're so furious. Jesus is saying, you're under judgment. You're misunderstanding the scriptures. You're not getting it. And Luke is saying, in a way, it parallels to the devil's understanding of the scriptures. Jesus is driven to the edge of a cliff, but he escapes their grasp and he slips away. It seems miraculous that uh, however he gets away, we're not told explicitly how, but it seems like it's miraculous in some sense. And so what do we learn from the second half of the story? The Nazarenes wanted to experience the comforts of this life as a result of God's anointed one being from their hometown. He's a hometown kid, a hometown hero. Surely he's going to come and, and, and help us out. Jesus, right now, at the beginning of this story, he's on track to have his name painted on the water tower or on the gates of the city. Welcome to Nazareth, home of Jesus. And they're saying, if you're going to be so prominent a leader and such a great savior to God's people, then let us get in on those blessings first. Later on in his ministry, Jesus will say to the Sadducees, you err, because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's what's going on with the Nazarenes in this passage today. They do not know the truth of the scriptures. They do not know the power of God. And their sin has blinded them from their ultimate problem. And that is what separates them from God. So the question before us today, brothers and sisters, as we close, is whether we know God's power and whether we know what he has done in Jesus Christ and what he is doing in the world. Do we know that the greatest salvation we can experience is being saved from sin? That the greatest blessing in this life is to know God savingly and to grow in our depth and our knowledge of him by going to the scriptures and trusting that it is in Christ that we are made in right fellowship with him. If we go back through many of the greatest prayers in the history of the history of the church, one of the constant admonitions is that one of, the, one of the greatest questions we ask God is that he would not let us forget the seriousness of our sin, 
that we would not fail to see how in so many ways, day after day, it separates us from God and prevents us from knowing him rightly. The question before us today is whether or not we will see in Christ the liberty that comes in him, the salvation that comes in him, is no small thing. He will make all things new. He will end all oppression. He will bring forth flourishing in a world where righteousness will dwell. But how do we actually experience that liberty and that freedom and that salvation now? In refusing to perform the kinds of miracles that the Nazarenes wanted and that they so desperately thought they needed, Jesus pointed them to this great truth. Liberty and salvation from sin is so much greater than the liberty your sinful flesh desires. Those who think that Jesus came to fix our fractured societies miss out on what he is actually doing. He's going to the core of our problem. He's going deeper than that. He's going to our sin and dealing with it once and for all. One theologian puts it like this. The fall of man ensures that all of our worldly projects come to naught. And that is true. But Jesus goes to the very depth of our problem, to the fall, to deal with it so that he might welcome us into fellowship and restore us in relationship to the Father. This is the blessing of knowing Jesus, of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. He came not to be rich in worldly things, and he certainly did not come to make us rich in worldly things, but he came to die. And yet we see even in this passage that he will not die until the Father's plans come to fruition. Though he is walking on the road to suffering, we see today that the Father does protect him. He escapes the grasp of this angry mob because no one can touch him without his father's saying so. And it is true for all of God's children. Though we are not usually powerful in this world, though we are not usually the richest or the wisest by worldly standards, nothing can happen to us until our Heavenly Father says so. Therefore, as we rejoice in so great a salvation, let us also rejoice in the mighty power and in the sovereign hand of the Father that holds us and keeps us until the very second that he takes us to be with our Savior forever. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you in humility, asking that you would refresh us once again by the truth from your word. May you call us to delight And empower us to delight in you. May we find in you everything that we need. And see the liberty from the fall that Jesus came to effect in his person, in his work. And that by believing in him, you will give us salvation full and free that can never be taken away. Empower us. Encourage us to go forth in that truth from here this week. In Christ's name. Amen. Let us respond.